If you're new with us, we've been uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and Essen the last several weeks has been leading us through chapter 13 of Mark, uh, which in many ways is it's probably the most complicated, least understood chapter of the Gospel. It's also tends to be controversial because people interpret it all sorts of ways. Um, and starting today, we are now moving into chapter 14, which is the longest chapter of the Gospel. It also happens to be the, the, the start of the climax of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and there's an ominous undertone in this chapter as Jesus' days on earth are coming to an end. There is a lot of action in this chapter. There's a conspiracy to murder. There's betrayal. Uh, there's arrest, a mock trial, friends abandoning Jesus. All of these things happen in chapter 14. It really does sound like uh, the, the plot to a new movie coming out this summer, doesn't it? And yet, this is real life. These things actually happened in history, for these are the events leading to the death of Jesus of Nazareth. So please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and I'll be reading for us verses 1 through 11. Give me a second to fix this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to hear your word read and proclaimed. We pray that your spirit would open our ears so that we can hear, that would open our hearts so that we would be changed by what we hear. But Lord, most importantly, we pray that we would see Jesus through your word and that you'd use this time to challenge us, to encourage us, to grow our faith and to grow our love uh, for him. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So verses 1 and 2, they set the scene uh, for this passage, and the first thing that we learn is that this has taken place a couple days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Passover was one of the most important uh, of the Jewish feasts. It was a celebration of Israel's um, deliverance from Egypt. In particular, it was a celebration of when God had sent his angel of death to kill all the firstborn children in the land, but he passed over the houses of, of those that had placed blood above their doors. Uh, and therefore, he spared the Israelites. 
And so the Jews, they continue to remember this deliverance, this saving um, each year by coming together. And during this time, this was such an important feast that Jews would come from all over into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would have a lot of people gathered together at this time, celebrating this feast together. And really, this should have been the primary concern of the religious leaders as well. But we read in verse 1 that they had other concerns. They had other things on their mind. The chief priests and the scribes, they'd gathered in secret to conspire to arrest Jesus and ultimately to have him killed. This was a dirty plot devised by the leaders of Israel. And their only concern was to come up with a plan that would do it correctly, that would do it quietly, so that the people would not be in an uproar. And you see, they did that because they didn't, want to, they didn't want to lose or jeopardize their standing with the people, but they also did not want to give Rome any cause to come and attack Israel, for they were slaves to Israel, or to slaves to Rome. Now, this was not the first time that the Jewish leaders had sought to kill Jesus. We read way back at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in, in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We see this again in chapter 11. We see it again in chapter 12. The religious leaders were constantly looking for ways to get rid of Jesus. And the events of recent days have made them all the more eager. You see, Jesus has done a lot of things recently. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and because of that, many people followed Jesus, and they were flocking to him. When he came into Jerusalem on what's called the triumphal entry, people celebrated him. They were excited that Jesus was there. His following was growing. And then he cleansed the temple and he rebuked the religious leaders. He constantly told parables against them. It really is no surprise, or should be no surprise, that they wanted to get rid of Jesus, this troublemaker, this one that was constantly making them look bad. The sad part about this is the religious leaders, they were the ones that, that knew God's law. They were the ones that studied God's law. They were the ones that should have recognized Jesus for who he was. And they should have welcomed him with open arms. But instead, they were threatened by him. And so they were looking for a way to kill him. They wanted to murder Jesus. The one we've been talking about for a year, the one who does all things well, they wanted to murder him. They wanted to murder the Messiah, the one that God had promised to send to deliver his people. They wanted to murder our Lord. But it had to be done right. It had to be done quietly. Well, their opportunity literally came knocking at their door, and we see this in, in verses 10 and 11. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him a sum of money. We learn elsewhere that was 30 silver coins. So Judas sought an opportunity to pray him, to, to betray him. So one of Jesus' own disciples came and provided the religious leaders with the opportunity they had been looking for. And they were glad about it. Why was Judas willing to do this? Why was he willing to betray Jesus? Well, it could have been that he had become disappointed with Jesus. Maybe he was disappointed because Jesus was not the person that he thought Jesus was supposed to be. You see, most people believe that Jesus, if he truly was the Messiah, that he was going to defeat Rome and deliver Israel from their captors and establish this kingdom of justice and peace forever. And that has not happened, so maybe Judas was disappointed. Or, or maybe 
Maybe he was disappointed because he did not feel like he was getting the blessings and the rewards and all the things that he thought was going to come his way for following Jesus. We don't know exactly why he betrayed Jesus, but we do know this, that Judas's heart had become hardened and that he had become a pawn of Satan. And there's a valuable lesson here for us. Think about this. Judas was living with Jesus. He was walking around with Jesus. He was eating with Jesus, fellowshipping with him, traveling with him. He witnessed many amazing things, many of the amazing miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus had done. He got to listen to Jesus regularly, listen to this authoritative teaching that was just attracting people to Jesus. He got to listen to that regularly. He was even sent out with the other disciples to proclaim the gospel and to heal people and to cast out demons. And despite all of those things, Judas willingly betrayed Jesus. How could he do such a thing? Well, proximity to Jesus does not necessarily equal faithfulness to Jesus. And this is important for us to hear. You can attend church all you want to. You can be involved in all kinds of things. But unless you are truly loving Jesus, that does not guarantee you anything. Judas was close to Jesus, but he truly he never truly knew him. He physically followed Jesus, but he was not following Jesus in faith. And before we are too quick to judge and dismiss Judas, all of us need to be reminded that if it were not for the grace and mercy of God, all of us would be Judas as well. The religious leaders, they were threatened by Jesus and therefore they wanted to kill him. Judas was disappointed in Jesus and therefore he was willing to betray him. Jesus has a lot of enemies. We've seen this throughout the gospel. But he also has a lot of friends. And sandwiched between these two passages about the, 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 the plot to kill Jesus and the betrayal of Judas is this beautiful picture of love and devotion. And it all begins at a dinner at Bethany. Now, now Bethany was located just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. This was the, the town that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in. It was a town that Jesus frequented often. It was, in many ways, it was one of his headquarters, one of the places he would visit regularly. And this is the place that Jesus is, is, is at now. And we see in verse 3 that he's here once again enjoying a dinner, surrounded by his friends. And this dinner was being hosted by Simon the leper. But let's not just pass by that. Simon was a leper. Leprosy in that time was considered about the worst thing that you could have. If you had leprosy, you were kicked out of your town, and you were considered an outcast. You were considered unclean. You could not be around anyone other than other leopards. Now, clearly, Simon had been healed. Otherwise, he would not be able to even host this dinner. And it's most likely that he was healed at Jesus at some point in time, and that may even be the reason why they're having this dinner in the first place. They may be having this dinner to to thank Jesus and to honor him for healing Simon. But regardless of when or how Simon was healed, it is remarkable that he is well and that he is even able to host this dinner. And furthermore, it is remarkable that Jesus would associate himself with someone like Simon, Simon someone that used to be a leper. But don't we see Jesus doing this all the time? Jesus loves the unlovable. Jesus pursues the lost. Jesus dines with the outcast. But that was not even the most unexpected thing about this dinner. 
You see, this meal is interrupted. We see this in verse 3. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And we find out from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And what Mary did was actually a breach of, of Jewish protocol. You see, women were not supposed to interrupt meals unless they were actually serving the meal. But Mary didn't care about protocol. She wanted to honor Jesus. And so she took what was probably her most valuable possession, a, a flask of pure nard, and she poured it all over Jesus. Now, there are a few things that I want us to notice here. First, nard was, it was an expensive and precious um, oil, perfume. Uh, we read in verse 5 that it was worth 300 denarii, which is equivalent to about a year's wages for a common employee. So this was a, a costly gift. Second, she empties the entire contents of the flask. So she completely exhausted her gift. Third, not only does she cover Jesus' head, but she covers his entire body. We read again in, in John 12 that she pours so much over Jesus that it's all over his feet that she's down at his feet wiping the oil off with her hair. Fourth, she broke the flask in order to pour it out over Jesus. And, and the alabaster flask in and of itself was actually an expensive item. And by breaking it, she made it useless. So Mary sacrificed completely her most valuable possession in order to honor Jesus. Why does she do that? Well, what Mary did was a token of great honor. In many ways, what she was doing is what you'd expect something to happen to a person of royalty. She gave Jesus a royal honor. But why? Well, certainly she was grateful for Jesus. I mean, she literally, Jesus literally raised her brother from the dead. He literally gave Lazarus back to Mary. So certainly, she was full of gratitude and thanksgiving for what Jesus had done. So certainly, that could be part of this, that this was a gift and a sign of gratitude. But it's more than that. You see, Mary loved Jesus more than anything else in the world. She loved Jesus more than anyone else in the world. And she wanted to express that love for him in the most extravagant and public way possible. You see, I think all of us would admit, we're, we're willing to make sacrifices for people we love, aren't we? The alabaster flask was probably a family heirloom, something that had been passed down from generation to generation. It was the family's most expensive possession. It was also a, a source of security for Mary and her family. In many ways, this ointment could be seen sort of as her emergency fund or as her nest egg. But Mary did not care about that. She completely exhausted and sacrificed it in order to honor Jesus because she believed Jesus was worthy of that gift. Her relationship to Jesus was more valuable than anything she sacrificed for him. Is that true for us? Are you willing to sacrifice your most prized possession in order to honor Jesus if he calls you to do so? Are you willing to give up what you are holding on to as your security blanket in order to serve Jesus if that's what he calls you to do? Mary knew that Jesus was worth the sacrifice. She would be gaining far more than she would be losing by loving and serving him in this way. So Mary put on this display of amazing sacrifice in order to honor her Lord. It was a gift of gratitude and of love. 
But there is something else Mary was doing with this gift. There's something that, that's deeper and more significant that's happening here. And we're going to see more about that in, in a minute as we look at verses 6 through 8. But before we turn to those verses, there's something else that we need to see here as well. You see, not everyone was happy with Mary's display. Look at verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So Mary had, made this, had just made a tremendous sacrifice in order to honor Jesus. But what was the reaction of those dining with Jesus? They were indignant. They scolded her. And these were the disciples. We learned from John 12 that, that Judas was the one who led the attack on Mary. But let's not dismiss the other disciples. They were there with him, and they were agreeing with him. Why were they so angry? What upset them about this so much? They believed what Mary had done was just an absolute waste. Because she could have sold that flask and she could have used it to minister to the poor. Just think about how much work she could have done with a year's worth of wages. Just think how, much, how, much, how many people she could have helped with that. And after all, isn't a big part of Jesus' ministry ministering to the poor? Didn't he just not too long ago tell the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and give it to the poor? The disciples felt that they had good ground for this rebuke. They felt that they were right, that Mary had done the wrong thing. Now, we'll see in John 12 that Judas had other motives because Judas was actually skimming money, and so he saw this as a loss of a big payday. But the other disciples, they, they truly were concerned about helping the poor and loving the poor. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be faithful to him. And so they believed that what Mary had done was truly a waste, that she had done the wrong thing, and therefore she was worthy of their rebuke. However, there's a problem with this. First, by demeaning Mary and her gift, they were also demeaning Jesus. They were saying to honor Jesus in this way was a waste. In essence, they were saying that Jesus was not worthy of such an extravagant gift. Another way to look at this is the disciples were more concerned about serving Jesus than they were about honoring him. And this serves as a warning for us as well. We need to be careful that we are not so focused on serving Jesus that we forget to spend time at Jesus' feet, that we forget to spend time worshiping and honoring Jesus. A great question to ask yourself from time to time is this. Do I care more about what I can do for the name of Jesus rather than I do about actually spending time with him? Sacrifice or service and worship are not mutually exclusive, but I do think we tend to spend too much of our time and energy focused on serving Jesus rather than just simply spending time with him. Another way to consider this is with this question. Are you more concerned about what other people think about you or about what they think about Jesus? What is the aim? What are you aiming to honor? Who are you aiming to honor with your actions? Mary, Mary was focused solely on Jesus. She wanted to honor Jesus. But the disciples, they were focused on other things. And there's a lesson for us. 
when we make sacrifices for Jesus, whether you sacrifice your time, whether you sacrifice your talents, whether you sacrifice your money or your possessions, there will always be people that will look at that sacrifice and say, that was a waste. Don't listen to them. Don't be discouraged. Jesus is worthy of infinite honor. You can never sacrifice enough for him. There is no gift given in honor of Jesus that will ever be a waste. You see, the disciples, they loved Jesus, and they were seeking to be faithful to him. But they were often forgetful. They were often hard of hearing. You see, there's something much bigger going on here. Mary seems to have some understanding of this, but the disciples do not. And so the disciples were in for a big surprise. Look at how Jesus responds to them in verses 6 through 8. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Jesus does not join in with the disciples in rebuking Mary. Instead, he commends her. And then he also says something interesting about the poor. He tells the disciples that you will always have the poor around. You will always have opportunities to minister to the poor. However, this is not the time for that. Why? It's because there's something that's more important that needs to be done. My body needs to be anointed for my burial. And that is what Mary has done. Mary has done what is better, and she has done what is right. Now, this does not mean that ministering to the poor is unimportant. I mean, Jesus wants us to minister to the poor, and he, he was an example of that. But at this moment in history, there's something far more important than ministering to the poor happening. Jesus needs to be prepared for his death. And Mary is God's chosen instrument for that purpose. So Jesus commends her, and then he goes and says five things about her. First, he defends her. He tells the crowd, leave her alone. Second, Jesus acknowledges the beauty of her gift. She, gave, she did something beautiful because she loved Jesus. She did something beautiful to honor him. Third, Jesus acknowledges the extent of her sacrifice. Mary did what she could. She held nothing back. She completely and sacrificially exhausted her gift on Jesus. Now, what matters to Jesus is not actually the value or the size of the gift that we give to him. In this, in this case, Mary gave something actually of great value. However, Jesus actually used similar language a few chapters earlier when he was talking about the widow's offering in Mark 12, 44, when he said, out of her poverty, he put, she put everything that she had, all that she had to live on. The widow also did what she could. The widow's gift had little value. But both Mary and the widow did what they could. And this is what we're asked to do as well. Now, you may be in a position in life right now where you just don't have much to offer from a, from a worldly standpoint. There's just not a whole lot that you can do or offer. But that does not matter. Because Jesus is asking you to do all that you can do. And this is freeing to understand. The more we understand this, the more we are able to freely give to Jesus without shame and without guilt. 
Because it doesn't matter what others think about your sacrifices. It only matters what Jesus thinks. And Jesus, he doesn't look at the, the size of the gift, the value of the gift. He looks at your heart. What is important is the motivation behind our gifts and sacrifices. Are you doing things for Jesus and are you sacrificing things for him because you love him and want to honor him? That is what Mary has done. Fourth, Jesus acknowledges that Mary's gift, her sacrificial act, had a prophetic and symbolic significance. She has anointed Jesus' body beforehand for burial. Jesus knew that he was only days away from his death. He also understood that because of the circumstances of his death and his being taken down from a cross and put in a grave, that there was not going to be time for his body to be properly anointed and taken care of. And so therefore it had to happen now. And that is what Mary's doing. The disciples should have been a part of this. Jesus had told the disciples many times that he was going to die. He also told them how it was going to happen. The signs were all there. Jesus' death is imminent. But the disciples missed it. They still did not understand. But Mary had some understandings. How? Well, ultimately, it's because the Spirit had moved in her to do this. However, she was prepared for this moment because she had listened to Jesus. You know, Mary is actually known for sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's remarkable. Almost every time you see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. That's even true with this event. Like in John 12, as I said earlier, you find Mary at his feet once again. She listened carefully and intently to him. He even commends her for this posture, says that she has chosen the better portion. And I think this is an important reminder for us today. You see, we live in a world where we're surrounded by voices. Now, I'm not saying we have voices in our heads, but we hear things all the time, right? We hear things from social media. We hear things from the news. We hear things from our friends and our family. It's becoming increasingly difficult to sort through everything that is thrown at us on a daily basis. And what is the result of that? I think many of us are just tired. I think some of us are fearful and anxious. Some of us are lonely. Some of us are angry. Some of us feel just an extreme amount of guilt and shame. Some of us might feel that we're worthless. Some of us feel lost and hopeless. How, how do we fight that? How do we combat that? We do that by sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus' voice needs to be the loudest and clearest voice that we hear, that we listen to, that we follow. And by listening to him, what do you hear? You are loved. You are forgiven. You are never alone. Jesus also tells us that I am in control. I have got this. There is nothing that is happening in our world today that I am not in control of. You can trust me. I am faithful. All of us, every one of us in this room need to spend less time on social media, less time listening to the news, less time debating our friends and our family, and spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. 
That is what Mary did. And because of that, she was prepared, ready, and available to honor Jesus and to prepare his body for burial. And that brings us to Jesus' final commendation for her. Jesus makes her a promise. He says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what you have done will be told in memory of you. So the disciples, they rebuked her. But Jesus commended her and promised that she would never be forgotten. And just the fact that I am here standing in front of you preaching this sermon about Mary is a testimony of the fact that he's faithful. He kept his promise to her. She will never be forgotten for this. Now there's one additional thing that I want to point out here as well. Mary is a woman. Surprise. Um, She's a woman. And in those days and in that society, women did not have much of a standing. And yet, she is the one that's being praised. She is the one that's being commended. She is the one that's being remembered in this passage. This is one of the many reasons why I love the Bible. This is one of the many reasons why I love Christianity. Because God places a high value on women, even when society does not. And I think, I think if we're honest, we still need to learn from that ourselves. We need to be more willing to listen to women rather than just ignoring them. We need to follow their example rather than just dismissing them. Jesus honored women often in his ministry. Are we doing that as well? The disciples, they leave this meal rebuked. But Mary leaves this meal remembered. And that leads us back to verses 10 and 11. Judas prepares to portray Jesus. Now this sets everything in motion that eventually will lead to the death of the Son of God. So after something beautiful takes place, after this beautiful sacrifice, after this beautiful token of love and honor, after this beautiful symbolic act, why do we have to end on such a sour note? The religious leaders are finally going to get what they want. Judas is going to finally turn on his master. So from this point forward, Mark takes a dark turn. But there's more than meets the eye that's going on here. So don't think for a second, don't think for a second that the enemies of Jesus have finally gotten the upper hand. Because everything that is about to happen, everything that is about to unfold is happening because God is allowing it to happen. This is all part of his plan. Jesus is the true Passover lamb who is about to give up his life, is about to shed his blood in order to save us from our sins. Jesus was betrayed by by a friend. He was betrayed by one of his followers. But he was betrayed for his friends. He was betrayed for us. You see, Mary is commended in this passage for her sacrificial gift given in honor of Jesus. But Jesus is about to give an even greater gift. Mary gave a gift that was worth a year's wages. Jesus is going to give a gift that is of infinite worth. He's going to give up himself. Mary pours her gift out upon Jesus. Jesus is going to pour his blood out upon the cross. Mary gave what she could. And Jesus is about to give what he can, which is himself. And he chose to do this. Why? 
It's because he loves you. He loves you and me, and he wants to save us from the wrath of God. And it is only the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb. It is only through that blood that we can have forgiveness and redemption. And we're going to acknowledge that here in just a minute as we come to the table. We are going to remember his sacrifice and acknowledge that it is only through Jesus that we are forgiven. So it may look like Jesus' enemies have the upper hand as we continue to work through Mark in the coming weeks. But they are actually playing right into the hands of Jesus. Listen to these words from Marion Clark. He writes, And though what happens to Jesus is terrible, understand that never does he lose control of the situation. Even in his most grievous moment in Gethsemane, the pain, the sorrow, and the agony are real, but they result not because Jesus has been defeated, but precisely because he is carrying out exactly his and his Father's plan. He, not his enemies, has the upper hand despite what seems the opposite. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for this reminder that Jesus is worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our devotion. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we get distracted. Forgive us for the many times that we get focused on other things. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity, that you would give us opportunities just to pause and to be still and to sit at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, listening to him. Pray that you would remind us that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we belong to you. Lord, I do pray for anyone here this morning, anyone that's hurting, whether it's physical sickness or pain, whether